This is Shannon in Durham, Chip in Durham, and Erica in Edmonton. And you're listening to the Audio Guide to Babylon 5, Episode 30, Soulmates. Londo! <laughs> Hello and welcome. Welcome back, everyone, to our latest episode of the Audio Guide to Babylon 5 as we continue trudging forth. Uh, watching each episode and talking about it through the entire five-year arc of the television show Babylon 5. We are getting to a third of a way through uh, season two, and we have arrived at the episode Soulmates. And because this is Peter David, and Peter David kind of requires alcohol, uh, we all decided that tonight we were going to enjoy something while we were drinking. Uh, Chip, what have you got with you? Something while we were drinking? Shannon, I think you've already started. (laughs) I am having a Gaelic Ale from the Highland Brewing Company of Asheville, North Carolina. It's a very good beer. I am having a uh, a glass of boxed red wine. It is a Shiraz from Naked Grape. It's, It's all right. Okay, and I'm also doing a Shiraz. I have got a South African Shiraz uh, called Jam Jar that is a favorite of both Chip and myself. So, yeah, and I'm actually yeah. glad that you that you well, glad that you brought up the fact that Peter David means we need to drink. I would like you to explain why, because when you guys said it in the email, oh, it's Peter David, therefore we should have something to drink. I was like, I really don't know why, but hey, I'm always happy to have a glass of wine while podcasting, so I was all for it. <laughs> well, um, I'm a little more familiar, I think, with Peter David's work than Shannon is, but we're both familiar with no, him. I've, and I've... yes. I was about to say, I, I read some Peter David, too. I'm, I'm familiar. Okay. Um, Peter David is a longtime writer of stuff. That, that is his uh, biography. That is, that is his job description. He calls himself a writer of stuff. He's very prolific. Lots and lots of comics, um, lots and lots of uh, media tie-in novels, as well as some original novels. If you have read Star Trek novels like Imzadi, or um, uh, let's Q see. and Law. Q and Law. Uh, yes, the uh, the uh, t- the team up between Q and Loxana Troy, things like that. You will know Whoa. that Peter David is not the most subtle of writers when he doesn't have to be, um, and he he goes for the joke, he goes for the drama, he goes for the operatic, and I think that he is perfectly suited for drinking while talking about his work. <laughs> All right. Yeah, and I, I had heard his name, uh, and, and I knew that he did the Star Trek tie-in novels. I've just never read anything else that he has done. I think the only thing I've consumed has been uh, the Babylon 5 episodes that he did. Yeah. yeah, and we'll talk a little bit more about him I guess, a little later, I guess. But I do want to share before uh, Shannon launches into uh, what you need to know about this episode. Um, I, I discovered a story on on Peter David's blog today that was just so cute and appeals to the Doctor Who geek in me. His wife is known for making puppets of uh, popular characters, and she had made a David Tennant puppet. And Peter David and David Tennant were both at a Wizard World convention a few months ago. And Peter David managed to arrange it so that he could deliver the Tenth Doctor puppet to David Tennant. And the con organizers give him the chance to sort of break in line, as it were, because, you know, different different levels of guests. There's David Tennant, there's Peter David. They're on different, entirely different levels. <laughs> Peter David comes comes up, talks to David Tennant, presents him with the puppet, 
David Tennant is reportedly uh, amused by it and likes it. And Peter David says, uh, it was made by my wife, Kathleen David. My name's Peter David. And David Tennant interrupts. The writer? Peter David goes, uh, yeah. I love your work on the Hulk. <laughs> and Peter David better. turns around and and shouts to the rest of the line, David Tennant knows who I am. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love that story on both sides because David Tennant is such a fanboy. It makes me happy. And the fact that Peter David is so excited about him. No, oh, wow. That warms the cockles of my heart. We're off to a good start, you guys. Yeah, yeah. He, he was well known for writing Star Trek tie-in novels and was always frustrated with people who would just say, well, when are you going to write an episode of Star Trek? So he writes an episode of... Babylon 5, and he's constantly asked after that, when are you going to write a Babylon 5 novel? Which he did, yeah. eventually, to be fair. He actually wrote three of them. Oh. Yes, okay. the, the Centauri Prime trilogy, so he gets to continue with the characters he helped invent in this episode. Very cool. Yes. Okay, and are we ready to kick it off? Absolutely. I've got my drink in hand. Yes, all right. So, with the episode Soulmates, what you need to know if this is your first episode, and you picked a fun one at least, um, Centauri society hinges on status and connections. Many of those connections come through arranging marriages, and it is common for Centauri men of high status to take multiple wives in pursuit of those connections. Marrying for love goes completely against those traditions. Psychor controls all things concerning human telepaths, including who they pair up with for childbearing. No one leaves Psychor as long as they're alive. Several episodes ago, Delenn underwent a process that changed her physiology from Mimbari to a combination of human and Mimbari. And that's really all you need to know for this one. There's not much backdrop. In this episode, an itinerant trader arrives to sell some items on Babylon 5. He is Matt Stoner, a former telepath, and Talia Winter's ex-husband from a short marriage ordered by the Psychor. He annoys the blazes out of Garibaldi, who is suspicious after seeing Stoner defuse an argument with no effort at all. Stoner sells some Centauri artifacts, one of which shows up in the B-plot, and Garibaldi continues to pursue him in order to shield Talia. Stoner tries to convince Talia to undergo the same process he endured that reportedly erased his telepathic abilities so she can leave the Corps and they can try their relationship again. Security detains Stoner when the artifact he sold is revealed to be a booby trap that nearly kills Ambassador Malari. After a guard breaks routine and Talia suddenly decides that going with Stoner is a good idea, Garibaldi pieces together that Stoner now has an empathic ability to compel people into doing what he wants. Sheridan speculates that Stoner never really left the Corps, but was sent to try and bring Talia back in order to attempt to breed children with Stoner's ability. Stoner tries once more to convince her before he leaves, but Talia wants nothing to do with him. Meanwhile, Ambassador Malari is celebrating the 30th anniversary of his Day of Ascension. The Emperor has granted Londo a boon and given him permission to divorce two of his three wives. Londo intends to celebrate his day and then announce which of the women will retain her status. The youngest, Marielle, is shown buying the Centauri statue that Stoner brought on the station. At the party, Londo unwraps the statue, which suddenly shoots poison darts into him. In MedLab, Dr. Franklin explains that the poison will kill Londo unless he receives a blood transfusion, but there is no Centauri blood of his type available. 
Timov, the wife who has consistently shown no affection for Londo, approaches Franklin and offers her blood for the transfusion, but swears him to secrecy. Jakar has a meeting with Marielle, in which he warns her that he knows she was the one who tried to kill Londo. Londo recovers and chooses Timov as his only wife going forward, explaining that, while they don't love one another, he will always know where he stands with her. And Delenn finds some parts of her new situation have grown untenable and asks Commander Ivanova for help. And that is Soulmates. So, going back to Peter David, uh, what do we think? Uh, there's certainly a whole lot of uh, the comedy, the jokes that Chip mentioned a few minutes ago. Uh, does it work for this episode? Does it throw it off balance? What do you guys think? You know, it's interesting. You described the uh, the B plot as the the plot with Lando's three wives, and and while I think I kind of agree with you, I also think that when I remember this episode, that's the plot that I think of. I totally kind mm-hmm. of forget about the whole. Oh yeah, you know, I was watching it, and you know me, I, the title meant nothing to me until I started watching it. And I was like, <laughs> oh, it's this one. And I was like, oh, that's right. I completely forgot that Talia had this whole thing with her ex husband or whatever who a- appears on the station. And but I knew exactly what was coming with Londo and his three wives because that is the plot that I remembered, and it really stuck out for me. So I, I think that that's a it's an apt characterization of of Peter David's work that he he kind of goes for the the joke and and I think it worked I'm I'm not going to say that I think this is a particularly good episode but it's one that I enjoy a lot. Okay, Chip, how about you? Yeah, same here. It almost feels like a comedy set in the Babylon 5 universe, like a couple of these mm-hmm. uh I remember a couple of comics that came out a few years ago in, that were set in the Star Wars universe uh, about uh, two hapless guys who just get caught up in the Star Wars universe sort of thing. And that's almost what this episode of B5 feels like. It feels a little slapsticky, a little stagey, and not completely part of the sort of the feel of Babylon 5, you know? And because I'm familiar enough with Peter David's work, it feels like Peter David sort of diving in into the Babylon 5 universe in much the same way that uh, Neil Gaiman dove in for his first uh, Doctor Who episode. Um, the Doctor's Wife. The Doctor's Wife. Wife. Thank you. You're welcome. So so I really like this one, actually. Uh, I agree with you, Erica. I'm not sure that it's a really quality, high quality piece of writing, except that it is purely entertaining. You know, mm-hmm. and I suppose that also depends on on how you look at it. I mean, Shannon hasn't uh, hasn't shown her cards yet, but I have a pretty sneaking suspicion how she feels about it. Um, so I will just pop in now and say that Stephen was not a fan of this episode. Oh, yeah, he he just thought it was very silly and very sort of throwaway. And uh, we haven't talked about Delenn yet, so I will save save his thoughts. But he had some <laughs> very very strong thoughts about about how oh, she's dear. been treated this season. Okay. Mm. Um, Like you guys, um, this is definitely a memorable episode, and it is memorable because of the Londo and his three wives subplot, rather than um, Talia's ex-husband plot. Um, The reason I listed that as the A plot was sort of because of the arc that has, the mini arc that has developed between Spider and the Web and Race Through Dark Places and now this one, which is why I thought... That was intended to be the the A plot for it. But yeah, I agree. Um, It's funny. Peter David has some very good 
barbs traded back and forth. I wouldn't be surprised if, if a little of the staginess might be uh, due to some of the actresses' past experience, both uh, Jane Carr that uh, played Timov and uh, Lois Nettleton that played uh, Daguerre. Uh, have huge, extensive um, backgrounds in television, some movies, and theater. Uh, so I could see um, I could see why that might have carried over into their performances. Yeah, because in the scenes in Londo's quarters, almost without exception, uh, when they're in there, it it feels like a stage performance. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it feels like it, it feels like a series of, a, a series of speeches, and they're good speeches they're funny speeches and I'll, I'll just say right now jane carr is wonderful in her role i love her in this in this thing but it feels disconnected from the rest of the story not only different plots but entirely different approaches to acting and and different different kinds of scripts and things like that yeah because there's very little that's funny in the a plot um, there, it's a really big contrast um, between uh, the Psycor plot and this one and the little tiny bits with Delenn and Susan. Um, it, it does feel very much like you've got sort of two shows happening. That's true. And I have to completely agree about Jane Carr. I thought she was awesome. Steven was, I mean, when she first showed up and, you know, she's got that the, the, the you know, glass cutting voice. Yes. <laughs> yes. He was like, he, he literally said, does she really talk like that? And then she continued talking. And I said, yep. See, he was, <laughs> she, he was not impressed. She talks like that. She talked like that in Dear John. I, that and that's what I know her from. High five to you for <laughs> for bringing up that reference. I've got it in my notes. I was like, was she on Dear John? And Stephen, who is checking IMDb, was like, she sure was. I was like, I knew it. I remember her. <laughs> I remember recognizing her from Dear John the first time I saw this episode, which is another one of the weird random things that stuck out for me. As long as we're talking about um, the actors and their backgrounds. One thing that amused me um, in looking up uh, Lois Nettleton, I believe, was the one who was on Murder, She Wrote, which is where um, JMS might have spotted her. But in looking back, um, she started in movies back in the late 40s. Like she had a huge, long career. Wow. But of all things, she was um, a secondary character in uh, the musical Meet Me in St. Louis. I'm a big Judy Garland fan, so I've seen that <sighs> film plenty of times. And, uh-huh. and she was Lucille Ballard. So, um, Lon's romantic interest. That yeah. may be where I recognized her from, too. I never yeah. looked her up, though, so. Yeah. Neat. But um, certainly those two actresses, both of them did a really good job. I mean, yes, Daguerre was very annoyingly the psychophant and fawning all over Londo, but she did a very good job of it. And I was a little little surprised that the third wife, uh, Blair Valk, who played Marielle, actually hasn't done a huge amount. She um, did did some stuff. Babylon 5 was one of her first roles, and she did a few things after that. And uh, she's been very quiet since then. So I guess she maybe found something else to do. I was amused at how strong the resemblance was between her and um, the actress who played Adira and Born to the Purple in the first season. And I thought that that was actually fairly canny casting to suggest, you know, that that Londo would be drawn to somebody who resembled his young and pretty uh, arranged marriage. I just thought that that was kind of neat. Agreed. Yeah, that was definitely amusing. Um, Speaking of other, just the one other character that I totally recognized, except that I didn't 
remember where from was the uh, the fellow who played Matt Stoner and he mm-hmm. just he seemed familiar and suddenly partway through the episode Stephen was looking on his phone he goes ah I got it I was just like <laughs> what he had of course looked him up on IMDb um, he was a voice actor in the video game L.A. Noir which is a game that both Stephen and I have played through um, at least once each uh, which is just like I got into it so I spent many hours listening to him as Detective Biggs talking to me and giving huh. me clues and hints as to what I should be doing in the game so I was like hey oh wait he's a slime ball here this is a little different <laughs> yeah and he's another one that is Keith Sarabica who is another actor with a very long distinguished career um, tons of character acting roles and recurring roles um, cop dramas voice acting he's done a huge amount of voice acting in the DC universe and so yeah he, he's gotten around uh, throughout his career and yeah, if, if since I assume we wanted uh, that the script wanted him to be a slime ball, um, he delivered. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yes, he did. Peter David, as I, as I said before, if he doesn't feel the situation calls for subtlety, he's not going to go with it. That that's that's just a waste of time. Let's just go full on. And I think one of the most interesting things about Stoner is that he is. An absolutely irredeemable slime ball. You compare him to a character like Morden, who is suave and understated. Keith Sarabica plays Stoner as somebody who just, as the other characters say later on in the episode, he feels like he's got all the answers. He's holding all the cards. He doesn't need to be a gentleman. And he never is. And I kept waiting for it to feel like this was just so over the top. And yet... I think we've all met people in the world from time to time who are just irredeemable jerks. And this is an irredeemable jerk. Mm-hmm. Did the rest of you feel like he was overdone? Yes. Yes, but he did it, he did it so well that it kind of, it, it didn't bother me. Like, I, I do think that it was, for any other actor, it would be a step and a half too far. Maybe with him, it was a half a step too far. Yeah, I think there were spots where it got to be too much. Um, for example, when he's goading Garibaldi about Talia um, and the fact that, you know, as her husband, he'd slept with her before, things like that. That was really pushing it. But on the other hand, it was remarkably consistent for a character who knows that at any given time he can control things and and turn the other person who is opposing him into his ally. So you know, definitely in your face with the acting. On the other hand, the character is written in such a way that there's a reason for it. So it didn't bother me as much. Well, focusing on the um, Psychor plot for a couple of minutes, something that kind of irritated me or I was questioning was whether or not Stoner was trying to use his ability on Garibaldi at any time, because it certainly seemed that it didn't work. So either... He was trying, and Garibaldi's just one of these magic people who resists because he's just such a, that stubborn of a guy. Or, for whatever reason, he was not trying to push Garibaldi yet because he felt he didn't have to. What did you guys think? I absolutely thought he was not trying to push Garibaldi. I think that he was delighting in Garibaldi's, you know, <laughs> and everything that Garibaldi threw at him, I think he was having fun. He's, you know, he's this this petty little man who likes to get his way and push buttons when he can. And here's an authority figure who actually, in the end, has no power over him. And I think that I think that Stoner just wanted to, to watch Garibaldi squirm because he knew, like he said, like Garibaldi said later, he's got an ace up his sleeve. Nobody asked 
acts like that unless they have an ace up their sleeve. I think if he had tried to push Garibaldi and it didn't work, we would have gotten some sort of reaction from him, from Stoner, to show Mm -hmm. that he was annoyed because he seems like the kind of guy who is used to getting his way pretty much every time he wants it. And if he hadn't gotten his way with Garibaldi, I think we we would have seen a reaction from him to that effect. Talk about a miserable marriage. Poor Talia. <laughs> I mean, and, and I have to feel, I have to believe that he would have been that way even before the experiments that turned him into a projective empath or whatever. <laughs> Probably. Ugh. Yeah, yeah, I would think so. But I can also see how he could also could be charming because, I mean, he's he's got a lot of charisma. You know, charisma doesn't necessarily have to be a positive or negative thing. It's just you make an impression on people. And I think that he he has a ton of charisma. And if he was was turning it on correctly and using it right, especially for somebody who is kind of young and not sure about how the world works, I could see how a, a young, vulnerable Talia might have fallen for a guy like this until she married him and got to know him a little better and was able to see through all of the BS, you know? If she ever did actually fall for him. I mean, it was arranged mm-hmm. by Psychor. True, but she did say at first that he was, you know, I can't remember the exact words that she right. used. Right, she does but... say something to the effect of that he was charming. And of course, if he'd been one of her trainers, you know, that was also the idea of, you know, somewhat something of, a, of an authority figure. So um, so I could see, like, like you said, when she was young, that she might have fallen for him. Although another thing that we had mentioned a couple of times leading up to this, how this episode originally wound up airing in front of a race through dark places because of special effects delays. I personally think that the master guide viewing order works much better overall um, because we see a more natural progression of Talia's dislike for the core from questioning things in spider in the web to having it shoved in her face, um, so many of the wrong things that Psychor does, so that by the time we get to this episode, she's actually stating, I'm I'm terrified of this organization and I want out. Um oh, so yeah. I think if I think of these two episodes, seeing them reversed in the order they were aired, might not have made as much sense. I completely agree. Not just I hadn't even thought of that and now that I, I recognize that fact, I think that because in this one, one of the first things Stoner says to her is, you want out of Psychor. And she, I can't remember if she overtly agrees or just doesn't say anything. It's sort of, you know, agreement by silence. Uh, and that wouldn't, to me, have made much sense before we saw a race through dark places. So yay for the master list. Yeah, it also makes a little more sense with um, with uh, at the beginning and in the opening scenes when uh, she walks in on Sheridan and Garibaldi talking about Stoner. Um, and Sheridan had asked her for help because he had heard some rumors about Psychor. He was hoping she could confirm or deny. It's like Sheridan can now count on her for uh, factual information about the core. He sort yeah. of assumes that when he would not have been able to do that earlier. Yeah, and I... The scene starts awkwardly when they're when he and she are in that museum kind of thing, and he uh, tries to get her to open up. But I do like that line where he says that he thinks of her as a friend, and then there's a beat, or at least an ally. You know, mm-hmm. I, and and I really like that. That's uh, that's a moment where it it could have been almost a little too schmoopy and it's like uh, Sheridan realizes that he may be going a little too far and then he sort of dials it back and gets a little more real and i just like that 
I think it shows uh, from a character standpoint that he is a character who is not oblivious to the interactions of people around him. He can he can read body language. He can read sort of what people are thinking by what's on their faces. And that's that's a skill that you kind of need in order to get to the position of captain where he is. So it's just little bits of evidence like this scattered throughout to show us that he he belongs where he is, I think. Despite everyone asking him, are you settling in? <laughs> oh, I love that. And I love that that interchange between him and Jakar when Jakar is like, oh, it's not like anybody else has uh, just suddenly disappeared from the station and gone off to the Minbari homeworld or anything like that. That would be unprecedented. That, that That's hysterical. That is such a funny line. Stephen better have laughed at that. He better have thought that it was funny. <laughs> I'm, he I'm cannot sure he say did. that it was if, if you if you tell me he thought it was silly. <laughs> No, I think, you know, we didn't talk about that line specifically, and I was busy jotting it down in my notes because I was enjoying it so much. But I, I have a vague recollection of, of him sort of giggling along with me. So you guys can stay friends. It's okay. <laughs> logos or no logos. <laughs> <laughs> okay. One other thing to uh, sort of point out something that sort of ties these two plots together besides the fact that, you know, the murder weapon is brought in board in one plot and then used in the other. Um, I wondered about uh, whether Peter David was sort of playing on the idea of marriage as a whole, because by the end of the episode, the only marriage left standing uh, is uh, Londo and Timov, and that is because they are totally honest with each other, of all things. Um, and as Timov points out, their lack of communication <laughs> um, I thought that was an interesting commentary, possibly, uh, from Peter David about what marriage involves. <laughs> I'm always wary of reading too much into, uh, you know, characters written on, on a TV show. So I'm I'm not going to uh, attribute too much to Peter David as a person. But it is interesting. I did I did note the fact that uh, that we've got quite the parallels going on in, in both of the, the storylines with, with marriage uh, not turning out quite the uh, fairy tale way you might expect. The whole episode is about arranged marriages. It's about the, you know, Londo's th- Londo chose none of these three women. Matt Stoner and Talia Winters did not choose each other. It's some nice parallelism. And, you know, I've been saying how... I've been taking a couple of pot shots over at Peter David for, you know, throwing subtlety out the window. And yet that's a fairly nice parallel track there. Yeah, maybe it's not so much a commentary on marriage as a commentary just on arranged marriage. Maybe it's just a way of saying that, you know, marrying for love is the way to go. And uh, this may be. This almost certainly is uh, Peter David or uh, Straczynski dialing it back a bit. Um, the current title is Soulmates, and you can sort of read into that whether Londo and Timov are essentially soulmates because they both know where they stand with the other, or the idea that Delenn speaks to Garibaldi about it, the idea that maybe he and Talia um, keep meeting each other in various lives. Uh, you can take what you will, but uh, Peter David's original title for this episode was Pestilence, famine, and death, which referred to the three wives. Um, pestilence was Daguerre, famine was Timov, and yes, he deliberately spelled vomit backwards to get her name. Oh my and, god! <laughs> and death was Marielle, who it is strongly implied is the assassin in the story. Um, and who does that leave left for Londo? War. And we've uh-huh. seen a little bit of that going on in the last uh, end of season one beginning of season two so 
so as we said, P- Peter David does not necessarily go for subtle, but someone dialed him back a little bit. I'm going to drop in a, a bit from the Lurker's Guide. Uh, Peter David is one of the few writers who is not named J. Michael Straczynski, who has some um, notes. He participated in the Babylon 5 Usenet groups and things like that. And he says, I'll never forget Jane Carr coming over to me the fifth day of shooting and saying in that accented voice of hers, Peter, did you know that my character's name is Vomit spelled backwards? Uh, well, yeah. <laughs> Ah, so yes, he was having a great deal of fun with this episode. His his original idea was to have the names of the wives tie into somehow pestilence, famine, and death, and he he dialed that back at least. I was trying to think anything else that in either the A plot or the B plot. Um, certainly, I, I loved Timov's justification for deciding to finally. Um, off, donate her blood to so that Londo would live. The fact that she wanted an even playing field for them to continue their battle was interesting reasoning, I thought. You know, th- the more we talk about it, I sort of came into this conversation looking at soulmates as a guilty pleasure. I'm feeling a little less guilty about it. <laughs> it there, there, there are some things that are just done so well. And, and those little bits, uh, like the conversation between Franklin and Timov, you know, it... it yeah. You know, I I really like this one. I do, too. I'm just sort of scanning through my notes here and, and seeing some things, you know, it, we get little character moments, like like I mentioned, just even Sheridan and Talia, him reaching out to her almost as a friend, uh, mm-hmm. and then and then taking sort of that step back. Uh, I I like also uh, the, the fact that Garibaldi sort of tries to play White Knight for Talia and oh, yeah. pulls in he pulls in Stoner and, and warns him off. And, and then after Talia talks to him, she's like, hey, and she's she does not appreciate that, which, of course, she shouldn't. I, you know, that made me a little uncomfortable there that he's trying to, to defend her honor. She's a grown up. She should be able to handle this herself. So so that was kind of a, a cool thing. And then even just like the little tiny things like Lanier giving marked cards to Londo for for his ascension day present just you know fun little things even uh, dr franklin saying stick it yes like that's some bedside manner i can get behind yeah (laughs) he deserved it yeah the actors i think really bought into a lot of the scenes really well uh franklin you know certainly you know he has promised timov he won't wouldn't tell londo how he survived but he's not going to put up with londo um bad mouthing his wives because you know one of them saved his life that that was wonderful and uh absolutely adored um i didn't mention this earlier when we were talking about staging but poor veer Poor yes. Veer doing the Chris Pratt zookeeper gag in between the two women before they're about to go at each other. That just about oh, that. twenty years before the zookeeper gag actually happened. But yeah, <laughs> I know. But that's what I thought of when I saw him. You know, like throw his hands out and get in between them before they could they could attack each other. Um, and you know yeah. what else about this episode? What? I think this is the. O- I think Mary Kay Adams is the only actress. In the opening credits, who isn't Keffer. in this episode? Warren Keffer. Okay. No Mary Kay Adams, no Robert Roessler. I'm okay with that. Um, <laughs> but but everybody else is there. Everybody else has at least a little bit of a moment to shine. And speaking of shining, I, I, I'm, I, will, wait, I will hear what Stephen has to say. But for me, uh, the scenes between Delenn and Ivanova and Lanier totally worked for me totally worked for me it was logical 
that something like this might happen if you extrapolate the idea that, you know, the Minbari physiology demands a different way of keeping clean. And the re- the two actresses just totally sold it for me. Totally sold it between Delenn fighting that hair and um, uh, Ivanova's reactions, you know, her, her facial expressions as she's trying not to get too involved into this, D- to Delinear sort of tapping his own head and wondering as he sees Delenn saying like, well, this is actually very relaxing. It all so worked for me. You know, um, it's, so I will gush. What will you guys think? Well, <laughs> it's it, it's another example of where I felt like this wasn't exactly like real Babylon Five, or is like a like as a comedy set in the Babylon Five universe. Um, you can tell that Claudia Christian and Mira Furlan are just having a ball with this, um, and and I love watching them do this. So it doesn't feel quite real. It doesn't feel quite like the characters that we know but this is a side to Mira Furlan we've never seen before and I love seeing it so I give it three quarters of a thumb up (laughs) um I love it despite it (laughs) (laughs) you know I I kind of agree. I mean, I wouldn't, I don't know that I'd say I love it, but I quite like it. And this was another bit that I remembered. As a matter of fact, ever since um, Ambassador Delenn came out of her chrysalis, I have been waiting for this episode because it just tickles <laughs> me so much that she has such trouble with her hair. Uh, I, I kind of wish that they had made her hair look slightly less good in each episode working up to this because I feel like it's kind of a, a, a sudden shift um, because mm-hmm. the last time we saw her it was still her hair was still looking perfect and it was perfect 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 suddenly not perfect so that's the only the only issue i have for it is sort of just a continuity continuity problem there but it's it's very minor i enjoy it and i think that you know i don't know maybe steven would even enjoy it if it wasn't for the context of the entire season so far he it was actually he was genuinely upset at the end of this one because of the treatment of delen he's very concerned mm-hmm. with with how she has has been handled this season because he said in his words she was a huge character last season which is totally true i completely agree uh, and he says now she's the new telepath she's barely in any episodes and when she is she's worrying about her hair so i think he's coming at it from a very feminist viewpoint saying that mm-hmm. that suddenly she is only worried about sort of like the 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 physical physical female sort of things and then at the end where she has cramps he was <laughs> he was so upset on her behalf oh. like he th- I think he thought that she was being sort of made a, a laughing stock a little bit from for for all of the wrong reasons and you know it, it is true that she really kind of took a, a harsh right or left hand turn depending on how you look at it um, after she came out of the chrysalis and and I'm okay with it i i I find it funny but i don't know i mean i've I've seen the whole thing right we're not going to go into any spoiler territory but but i have like i have these ideas in my head of who she is as a character and and i think you know the sillier episodes are not necessarily going to affect me as much as they are somebody going through it for the first time yeah you know that's a really good point that when you do any kind of a storyline for a female character and you take that character down a notch or two, it's it's going to feel like a blow against feminism, honestly. Um, and I can I, and I can see that. So yeah, yeah, yeah I, I I can see where I can see where Stephen is coming from. Yeah, I can appreciate that. I think my point of view is partially, of course, you know, we've seen the entire series and we know who Delenn is and we know what she's like. 
but I was not thinking of it from feminism quite as much as I was thinking of just plain alien logic, as I said. You know, in a lot of other science fiction shows, they would never have even bothered to consider, well, what happens to this character who is used to one culture and now her physiognomy has changed and she has to adapt into a second culture and she doesn't know what to do. She has no idea how to deal with this hair. She has no idea that her cleaning routine it does not is not appropriate for her new hair, her new skin, whatever. Um, and the fact that apparently her insides have rearranged enough that now she's got a human reproductive system in there somewhere. Um, you know, that <laughs> felt like addressing a point in a very funny and comical way that very few shows bother to address. So it yeah, worked and, for me overall. And being female myself and having yeah. dealt with hair, hair issues and cramps and stuff, I think that it actually resonated with me from a place oh, that yeah. I don't Oh, yeah. But I don't get on television shows, you know, depending on the kind of show, you get it more on some types of shows than other. On a science fiction television show set in space, totally unexpected. So I think that that while I can completely see Stephen's point from a feminist perspective, I can also see our point from a feminist perspective because because, yeah, why should why should girl stuff be seen as as lesser than and more silly than anything else that's going on in the universe? Those are problems, too. I have nothing to add to that. <laughs> okay. Okay. Um, is there anything else that we can think of uh, before we jump into spoiler territory? I just want to we... give a shout out to the guy who played the giant in Twin Peaks as the, uh, <laughs> <laughs> as the oh, salesman okay. of the uh, artifacts. I was just like, it's the giant from Twin Peaks. It's Carol Strokian, who is also Mr. Holm in Star Trek The Next Generation, Loxana Troy's attache. And Thank you. I could not place him for the life of me. Thank and you. Lurch in the Adams Family movies. Yeah, Stephen mentioned Excellent. that one, too. <laughs> I did have one quick thing I wanted to ask um, as far as as we mentioned at the beginning that we thought this was an entertaining episode, but not necessarily a strong one. And I'm wondering, there were a few times and I don't know if Stephen mentioned anything directorial that would have lent to this. Um, it felt to me a bit like both the A plot and the B plot were just a needed a little more time or like one or two more scenes to really flow together. It seemed like things jumped a little bit, uh, like the the murder mystery bit. Um, all we get is Jakar telling Marielle that he, he thinks he knows she did it. And there's not really much of an investigation into what happened other than um, stoner stonewalling um, about, you know, the fact that, you know, he found this thing and he didn't sense anything wrong with it. it just a f- few times I was like, this is jumping a bit. Um, what did you guys think? Or do you have anything to say about that? Stephen didn't mention anything directorial in this one. I think he was just kind of shaking his head at the whole at the whole thing, the whole nonsense of it. Um, but I, I do agree that, that the two plots did, it really felt more sitcom-y, not just because we were going for some of the, the bigger, wider laughs, but also because you had the, the A plot and the B plot being almost entirely separate. That just, it had more of a feel of, of less elegant television. So I kind of agree with that, that maybe, maybe some extra time could have pulled them together a little more. Maybe not. I'm not sure. Yeah. Although, honestly, it, I think if it had felt less sitcom I would have enjoyed it less. Yeah. Okay. 
And, you know, before we jump into a uh, spoiler space, I'll, I'll just go through the rest of uh, Stephen's little observations. Um, Certainly. When it, fir- when it first started, uh, he, he saw Londo. He said, oh, Londo's in it. That means it'll be a throwaway. And I can't <laughs> say he was wrong. <laughs> um, it was kind of felt like that. Uh, and then uh, when Matt Stoner appears the first time, he's like, is he a Jedi? <laughs> and then later, um, and then later I... Uh, I can't remember exactly which part it was where he he did something to change somebody's mind. And Steven is just like, yep, Jedi mind trick. <laughs> I was like, wow, he nailed it. Um, but of the uh, of, of the uh, B plot with Lano and his wives, his, his first comment was, it's the bachelor. Um, and I was just like, <laughs> oh, my God, again, he's not wrong. <laughs> so like, it, it gets it gets hard to defend when he's he's that quippy. Um, but mm-hmm. but he did. He said that parts of it were interesting when it was finished. Um but then it was really bathed in and derailed by all this other frivolity going on. And I quote. So, <laughs> but the frivolity yeah. was wonderful. Yeah, I enjoyed it. But he just, he's still not liking the Centauri in general. He feels like the Centauri are kind of like the Ferengi on Star Trek. Uh, because every time we learn more about them, it just gets silly. And and he's he's just not on board. So, you know, fair enough to each his own. Yep. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess then we're about ready to wrap up the first half of the podcast with um, talking about just this episode and the stuff that came before. So we're about to head into spoiler territory. Those of you who are watching for the first time, we encourage you to turn off the podcast and continue enjoying these episodes uh, without any advanced knowledge. Um, Stephanie, you're doing it wrong. Um, we are back into uh, the regular order for the next few episodes, and we will be next watching The Coming of Shadows. Yep, that'll be next time. And we may even have a special guest uh, hanging out with us for that one. Yep. Okay. Um, and until then, you can always come and join the conversation. Uh, we are on Twitter and Tumblr at B5 Audio Guide. And we have, of course, our website, B5AudioGuide.com, with uh, comment threads um, divided into spoiler and non-spoiler. So those of you who want to watch with a fresh mind can go and chat to your heart's content about what you've seen so far. We welcome everybody's input and uh, hope to see you all there. And with that... Let's jump through a gate. And we're back. Um, the Centauri as the Ferengi, really? <laughs> I know. Every time he says something like that about Lando or the Centauri and about how they're all just laughs and giggles and it's too silly and he doesn't like it, I just like, I have to bite the inside of my lip not to even just scream out loud. Just you wait until just... next time, Stephen. Just you He'll wait until the coming learn. of shadows. He'll learn. Oh, exactly. Um, Which I, that I makes can't... me extra happy and excited about it, though, because, I mean, that that, that shows that the turn is, is so dramatic. It, it, it just, it, yeah, I didn't get to experience that myself, so I'm looking forward to seeing him go through it. Yeah, I mean, I, I can sort of understand uh, a bit of his point of view. It's very clear that, you know, Centauri society, women have their place. Um, capital H, capital A, capital P. Um, they are wives. They are mothers. They are ornaments. Um, they are sexual objects, but they are not in positions of any great power. Uh, the fact that Londo can just cast, you know, two of them off thanks to the emperor's dictum and you know, he chose to give them a handsome allowance, but he didn't have to. He could have just thrown him into poverty and kept the one that he wanted. Um, it does say a lot about, about the Centauri race. 
So yeah, I, I I thought it was interesting too that I think it was Marielle um, who we later find out is the is the assassin most likely, even though it's not exactly confirmed. She says at one point, "I am what I was made by my father, by Londo, by society." I thought that was just really mm-hmm. an awesome line and and almost so so subtle and 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 perfect social commentary that it was it almost didn't fit with the rest of the episode but i appreciated having it there sort of for seasoning because it, it does show it's their society has sort of turned everyone into what they are londo included which you know we will see more of that later where his his turning the, the turn of his character is really um in great part because of the centauri race and the way that the republic is is declining and and he wanting him wanting to fit into society in a way different than he is right now so it's it kind of sucks for everybody indeed um it also kind of sucks as once again we have these you know interesting fun uh vibrant characters and we never see them again on screen it's like londo you know he goes back to centauri prime he winds up becoming emperor later on we never see team of again on screen which i really makes me want to throw something um <laughs> uh, we mentioned i mentioned the tie-in novels that peter david wrote Timov does appear in the centauri prime trilogy so cool. um and it's made clear that you know she continues to um be uh, a very faithful public wife to londo um you know appearing when she's needed and uh showing her public support of him and even winds up that towards the end of their lives it's almost like they've actually fi- kind of gotten fond of each other after all this time, they're, they're finally used to one another and appreciate one another. And uh, it, she actually dies moments after Londo and Jakar strangle each other. She actually dies a few minutes later. Um, so it's kind of faithful to the end uh, in that way. Mm-hmm. And um, it's been Marielle a while. also shows up in, in those books. Yeah. And it's been a while since I've read those books. Um, but as I recall, they're pretty darn good and they're uh they are more subtle to use the phrase the word that i've been overusing with related related to peter david they are more subtle than uh this episode might suggest well it's prose yeah it's not teleplay yeah Mm -hmm. definitely a different beast and of course we have um a couple of people on the forums uh have mentioned that this is essentially talia's last big episode um, we will see her very briefly in one scene in They're All on Our Lies. Um, she has a short bit in The Shadow of Zaha Doom. Um, and then her next big episode is Divided Loyalties, where um, Lita reveals the sleeper personality and control takes over and there is no more Talia. Um, and a couple of the people on the forums were sort of complaining slightly that they preferred the televised order because they felt that a race through dark places was a more heroic um, end point for Talia. What do you guys think? Hmm. Yeah. You know, these episodes were probably sequenced the way they were uh, before it became very clear that uh, Talia, that Talia would be leaving, that Andrea Thompson would be leaving. Um, But I'm okay with it. 
Yeah, I think it's more important to me for the order of the episodes to be based upon the continuity of the show in general, kind of Mm -hmm. the larger universe, than it is to give a a send off to one particular character that's that's slightly better. I I completely agree, Chip. I think it does it does read like they weren't expecting her to leave at this point, and and I think she gets plenty to do in her last episode, and I think that that it may be one of her best performances at that point. So I'm I'm fine with this as far as the order goes. Yeah it's not she's not the star of the the show quite so much here and and it's not as meaty of a role but i still think that she has she's important and she it's interesting and she has enough to do that i'm good with it yeah and and she's a good actress and for the most part uh the the roles that she has in this in in these two seasons are pretty are are pretty good you know they're well written um Every character is somebody's whoopee. Um, you know, I, I was, I was, I was, I, I was holding the torch for Sinclair up until the very end. You know, I was in denial that uh, War Without End would be the last time we'd ever see Sinclair. Andrea Thompson justifiably has fans out there who would like to, who would have liked her to have had a stronger send off. Um, that doesn't always happen, and and it might not have been a good thing for the show. I mean, Agreed. I mean, the whole the whole point of the trap door is that, uh, you know, and JMS JMS explicitly make draws this analogy to The Shining when Scatman Crothers, you know, you think he's coming to the rescue and that whoop, nope. Um, <laughs> and uh, Talia Winters is the future. Whoop, nope. It may have been a trap door that he didn't want to use. But it was there, and it was dramatic, and we got another character who, in some ways, was stronger um, a- afterward, and I'm okay with that. Yeah, I'm. You know, I'm, we'll talk about this later, more down the road. But yeah, I'm. I'm Team Lita all the way. I've never actually been a Talia fan very much. I don't think anything about her performance is, is particularly strong. So I guess that's why I don't have uh, strong feelings about her uh, her send off story. Like one's as good as another, as far as I'm concerned. Essentially, I'm Team Lita as well, but in this rewatch and uh, this time around being on Tumblr and being more into uh, the uh, Babylon 5 fandom that's out there now, uh, now that there's no more Recarts SFTV B5, there's a lot of love for the Talia Ivanova relationship. So I'm kind of understanding, you know, what they're feeling, um, even as I look forward to Lita kicking everyone's butt up and down the uh, up and down the yard later on. Yeah, I'm I'm much more... uh excited about uh, Talia's character this time through and I'm, I'm watching it and paying it closer attention to all of the, the characters. I'm definitely getting more out of it this time. Um, but but yeah, still team lead. And who knows, maybe if, if she would not have left, maybe we w- I would have developed the same kind of love that I have for Lita for Talia because she would have been the one kicking people's butts up and down. Fair enough. Fair enough. Although you, you, that's, that's a good point because Talia never actually became a butt kicker. The closest mm-hmm. we got was uh, a race through dark places. And like you said last week, um, if um, things had happened in their original timeline, um, as you said, if the divided loyalties did happen and control took over, that if uh, the Vorlons did indeed record her original personality so they could get her back, um, and through that she would continue becoming this um, amazing telepath and telekinetic and all of the stuff that Jason Ironheart gave her. Um, that she would have been allowed to to do all that. 
um, as we're talking about Talia, um, what about the Psycor? It just seems like every week for the last few weeks, we keep finding more and more reasons to hate them because we had the idea that um, they're spying on Babylon 5 um, and they're willing to kill people to forward their agenda. Um, a race through dark places, we find out that they don't treat their telepaths very well if they don't cooperate. And here is even more evidence that we've already seen as far back as Jason Ironheart that they experiment on their own to try and make more powerful beings. Um, how much worse can it get? Um, that's a good question. Um, you know, I, I really like this Talia trilogy. And Psychor is at the heart of it at every single level. And I think we've got the message now. Psychor is a big super threat. And if I recall correctly, we're not going to get as much about Psychor in the next uh, in the next several episodes. So it's like we got this concentration that's going to sort of stick Pay in off the next season. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's going to it, it, it's enough of a concentration for us to to get it stuck in our minds while JMS moves on and takes care of some other stuff. So I don't think that they're pushing it too hard. I think that they've done what they needed to do. I think if they'd gone into a fourth consecutive episode, I think that that would have been too much. But this is this is good. This is good. And it's balanced enough sort of with the other things that are happening in, in some of these these episodes. Um, first of all, I love the alliteration of uh, Talia Trilogy. <laughs> I'm on board <laughs> with that. Uh, and I, I, I think that... That yeah, it's because you know you get you get Bester in an episode, so it's it it's not so much that it's focused on Psycor, but it's focused on this one bad guy who happens to be in Psycor, and then you've got you've got a completely different character, uh, Matt Stoner, who is he's not with Psycor anymore, except that he really is, and and I feel like it's not the same. If it was the same gaggle of, of folks from Psycor that were beating the door down at Babylon Five every week, then it might get to be a little bit much. But but overall, I I don't think. I mean, Stephen hasn't said anything about feeling overwhelmed with with all of the Psycor stuff. He was completely shocked that uh, three weeks in a row we had Talia stories. But I think that was just a Talia thing, not a Psycor thing. Yeah, yeah. I'm trying to remember when uh, the telepath thing. If it's uh, divided loyalties, that it really sort of comes in again for uh, an episode or so. But something else um, that I found interesting that folks were talking about on um, our spoiler threads was um, the the claim that Vester's not a villain. He's just fighting extremely hard for what he believes in. I'm not sure I buy it. He seems to take a little too much pleasure in making other people uncomfortable or angry for me to buy that. Uh, what do you guys think? He's, he's, he's Bester. <laughs> Best answer ever. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah, I think I think I agree. <laughs> and okay. I'm not going to go in much deeper in it because this isn't a Bester episode. But, and ter- but yeah, uh, I think that we've been given more than enough information that Psycor as an institution ha- has been corrupted to the core. And I think we talked a little bit earlier, uh, a couple of podcasts ago, about whether that was, you know, you know, whether that was realistic. You know, we had some moments like when Talia was trying to get information for Mars in the in a voice in the wilderness. And one of the Psycor representatives says, you know, I'll try to help you out. You know, but by and large, Psychor is an inst- institution that was corrupted from within, and 
it's not until we get into um, Crusade where we see an Earth Gov with without a Psycor, where they still have uh, checks and balances to try to uh, protect keep privacy, t- try to pr- protect privacy, but also to protect telepaths. And you have uh, Lieutenant Matheson, the character in Crusade, who is the first regular military member of um, Earth Force who happens to be uh, a telepath as well. But yeah, we've had ample evidence to show that Psychor is nasty and evil, and these three episodes really do that, and I'm, I'm content with that. So just a few more things to, to point out. We, we didn't mention it pre-spoiler, but hey, Lou Welch is back. Um, Yay. And I so, think this is his last one. Is it? Oh, Aww. poo. Okay. That's sad. But Good that's much, that much more work for Jeff Conway. There is there is that. True. Yeah, I was about to say when I was looking at a few episodes down the road, uh, yeah, Zach Allen is about to finally become a recurring character. So that's that's cool. A couple of other things um, I noticed, uh, of course, we have the name check of Sinclair, and I have to wonder if that isn't a bit deliberate, since in The Coming of Shadows, um, we actually get the reveal that Sinclair is not only the ambassador on Mimbar, but he's also um, restarted the Rangers, and those get introduced. So I think that was a a bit of a reminder for anybody who might not have been watching that, hey, this is a character who was here before, and and he'll be back. And I do believe... um, it, it, it was hard to tell because I didn't see the particular. I, I didn't. I saw a badge on the Minbari's chest, but I didn't see whether it was the you know the, what we come to see later on as the Ranger badge. But there is a conspicuous Minbari appearing in several scenes in this episode um, in the foreground, who has no reason to be foreground and no reason to be walking by, except it looks like he's wearing a uniform. Hmm. Okay. I didn't catch that. I think I know which one Chip meant. I'm I'm not sure that the badge was exactly the same. It seemed really ornate, but um, it could be. I also wondered, um, I think this is the second time that we've had the Marcab mentioned. Um, while Ivanova is going through her litany of things with Sheridan and checking things off for the day, she mentions uh, the Marcab going through a fasting ritual or whatever. Um, I'm wondering if that's sort of helping smooth the way towards Confessions and Lamentations, which, of course, is all about the Marcab when we get mm-hmm. to that. Um, so if so, yay, nice little bits of continuity, sort of laying the ground and taking into account newer viewers, um, that might not have heard these names before. Yeah. And, you know, regardless of which direction that, that seeding is coming from, whether they're seeding it on purpose because they know Confessions and Lamentations is coming up, or if Confessions and Lamentations picked up the name of a race that they had been talking about previously to bring it in. Either way, I am happy with it. That's one of the things I love about Babylon 5 is that you get that kind of continuity. You have things that are just sort of mentioned offhandedly, and then later on, they pay off in a really big way in some cases. Indeed. One other thing, and I meant to mention this pre-spoiler and forgot, um, I thought the music was done pretty well this episode. Um, I really noticed it when, um, after the title credits rolled, that uh, the intro was of a particular particularly pompous nature that just lent itself to um, Londo's three wives coming on board and uh, being recognized. So I thought that was a particularly well done bit. Especially when you consider the way it could have been, because uh, when we had the war prayer, 
which introduces for the first time um, the concept of Londa's three wives and the god awful comedy music stings as yes. Veer looks at the picture of the three wives and all this other stuff. We could have gotten that this time and we didn't. Very yeah, true. You know, I, I noticed the music in the war prayer and not in a good way. And I did not notice the music here, but I think that's a good thing because I usually don't notice the music. And if it's doing its job and it's doing it well, most of the time I won't. So, so I, yes, I will give it a thumbs up simply because I didn't notice. One other thing um, that we alluded to briefly in pre-spoiler section that um, I think it's the Lurker's Guide that actually points out that there's a big damn reveal in a very subtle, humorous one line, uh, the fact that, yes, Delenn apparently now is human enough that she could give birth um, the human way. Um, I don't know how different that is from the Mimbari way, but that, you know, sets up the idea of not only is she herself possibly going to be a bridge between the two cultures, but she may give birth to a child who will be even more of a bridge between the two cultures. Um, and of course, as we know later on, she and Sheridan, of course, will have their son, David. So I thought right. that was an in- interesting way to to hide a, a really huge concept in plain sight. Mm-hmm. And um, this sort of brings us back. And this is a Peter David script. So I I think I'm reading too much into it. But if we want to talk about soulmates... And we talk about the Mimbari soul migration stuff and the mm. thought that uh, Sinclair was the reincarnation of Valen and, and things like that. That makes Delenn's little speech to Garibaldi. If, if, if Sinclair had still been in the picture, that would have made that conversation really interesting because, uh, because Delenn thought that she was going to be having a relationship with Sinclair and that their son would be savior of the universe or something like that. Didn't quite turn out that way, but I think that that reflection might have still just sort of been part of the DNA of this episode. I like it. Can we think of anything else that we want to mention before we shove off and uh, wait for two weeks for uh, in the in the shadow, uh, not in the shadow, the coming of shadows. Not in the shadow of Zahadum, the coming of shadows. <laughs> that one's a little farther off. Uh, I just want to yeah, take a the, moment to... the wine's to... taking effect. <laughs> here, here. <laughs> Cheers. I, in the spirit of the wine taking effect, I just want to I'll have all of us take a moment and appreciate the giant painted face of Molari on the wall. <laughs> oh, yes. Party. <laughs> oh, Lord. Yeah. Uh, and uh, here's hoping that, uh, you know, I... Recall Stephen's outrage over the cramps joke. Mm-hmm. And I, just like the Centauri equals Ferengi false equation, I hope mm-hmm. that uh, a couple of years down the line, when um, when Sheridan and Delenn get together and the prospect of procreation um, comes around, I hope he will look back at that scene slightly more favorably. I, I'm certain he will. And if he doesn't, I'm, <laughs> I'm going to point out why he should. <laughs> and I guess with that, we will wrap this one up. Uh, thank you, as always, for listening. Thank you, as always, for uh, contributing on our website and through um, comments and so forth, uh, Twitter and Tumblr. And those all can be found at B5 Audio Guide or B5AudioGuide.com. And once again, next week... The Coming of Shadows. Yes. Um, and a, a little bit of extra credit homework if you want it. 
This is absolutely not required, but I would suggest if you've got the time, you might want to go back and rewatch season one, episode one, Midnight on the Firing Line, before or after you see The Coming of Shadows, because there's some remarkable parallelism that goes on there, and uh, I would love to discuss it next time. Well, I certainly can't watch it before watching The Coming of Shadows because that would be like a huge spoiler. Stephen would be like, why are yeah. you re-watching this one? <laughs> yeah. But maybe afterwards I could get away with it. Okay. All right. And uh, with that, this is Shannon in Durham. Chip in Durham. And Erica in Edmonton. And you've been listening to the Audio Guide to Babylon 5.